quarter cup at a time. A thin stream. It's supposed uh -huh. to be a thin stream. Blend it really uh -huh. well. Or you'll burn... David, that's not right. Okay, well, that's because I'm ladling and stirring at the same time and you're just standing there. Now is not the time to lose focus, darling. This was your idea. You're the one who allegedly made the enchiladas. Yes, so try to keep up. Okay, next. Now's the time to sprinkle in the chili pepper flakes. We've already done that. What number are we on? Oh, my God, is this not your mother's recipe? Yes, and now I'm passing it on to you. So try to keep up. Um, oh, next step is to fold in the cheese. What does that mean? What does fold in the cheese mean? He folds it in. I, I understand that, but how, how do you fold it? Do you fold it in half like a piece of paper and drop it in the pot, or what do you do? David, I cannot show you everything. Okay, well, can you show me one thing? You just, here's what you do. Uh -huh. You just fold it in. Okay, I don't know how to fold broken cheese like that. And I don't know how to be any clearer. You take that thing that's in your hand, uh -huh. and you... If you say fold in, one more time. It says fold it in. This is your recipe. You fold in the cheese then. Don't you dare. You fold it in. David! Oh, good. Now I see bubbles. David! What does burning smell like? That is one of my all-time favorite scenes from one of my all-time favorite shows. And I would welcome any excuse to show a clip from Schitt's Creek as the intro to A Sunday Morning Message. But that particular one feels especially poignant to me. Both, like on a personal level, that scene just kind of feels like the motto for my life. Everywhere, all the time, I am just trying to fold in the cheese, man, and I don't have a clue. Aren't we all? But I also think that it speaks well to the place that we currently find ourselves in in Philippians as we start to approach the conclusion of our Heights of Harmony series. Like in a lot of ways, I feel like today's passage is the, yeah, but like, how to last week's passage? If you had a chance to catch that message, you'll remember that Jeff walked us through the Apostle Paul's very simple, very easy instructions to just not be anxious about anything, ever. You know, to just simply rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. But like, how? Because have you met life? Just be anxious for nothing. You know, just, just like fold in the cheese. That's how I feel. So we did get started last week with a bit of the how by, by looking at what it means to bring our anxieties to God through prayer and perpetual thanksgiving to, to meet God in the midst of whatever else is swirling around us. But I think these next few verses are where the white-hot how really starts to come into focus. You know, where we see the footsteps hidden in the ground that truly can lead us into a new way of seeing and being that, that makes that real from the inside out. So we'll start back at Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I don't know 
how that passage strikes you in light of whatever anxiety-inviting storms you are facing these days. I know I've got a few. And maybe, like me, you read those words and you think, like, okay, but I've got real problems to solve, you know? Like, now is not the time for skipping around in the daisies, thinking about whatever is lovely, whatever is pure. <laughs> you know, I need wisdom. I need direction. I need action. I need a plan for what to do in the eye of this storm. And yet somehow Paul is saying that these are exactly the things to do in the eye of every storm. You know, to get your butt over there and skip around in the daisies, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, or maybe not. And we have to remember that, that Paul is not writing these words from comfortable circumstances, but in chains from the floor of a prison cell, awaiting his own execution. He is speaking from the eye of the storm. I have to listen differently then. The, the finally at the front of this passage is important. You know, this isn't actually the end of the letter yet, so it's not that kind of finally, like when you're signaling your audience that you're just about done with your thoughts. It's not there for chronology. It's there for emphasis. It's a finally meaning that everything has been leading to this. It's the finally to all he was saying in the few verses previous. It's the finally to everything he's been saying throughout this whole letter. And I think it's actually the finally that Paul is saying to everything he's been teaching them through his entire however many years of gospel work among them. He's saying, this is the thing that I ultimately want to leave you with. Do this thing. And so what is that thing? What are we to emphatically do? To fix our thoughts on goodness on what is lovely, pure, noble, and true, to immerse ourselves in that worldview. And I don't be mistaken, that is not a soft strategy. That's actually an incredibly powerful move and the only one that ultimately works in the eye of an anxious storm. See, the best way to get rid of something isn't just to try to drop it or toss it or fling it off somehow. I mean, that's a start, I'm a fan, but to truly dislodge it, we need to move something else better into its place, to let that take up residence there. Now, the best way to push out the bad is not by trying to push out the bad, but to simply pull in the good and let that do its work. That's what Paul is calling us to here. Now, just stopping anxious thoughts is almost impossible. Our brains just don't work like that because the brain is constantly in motion. You know, it's going to go somewhere. So the key is to actively turn the direction. You know, the same way that our thoughts tend to race to negativity, Paul is urging us to, to turn the ship and let them race instead towards goodness. How do we genuinely become anxious for nothing? Not by problem-solving around what's making us anxious, but by learning how to fix our gaze on goodness. Step number one in that, if goodness is where you want to go, then practice looking for goodness. Uh, my son Avery has just gotten his G1 driver's license, so last week we went out for a first driving lesson. And I had to work so hard to remember the once conscious thoughts that have now become subconscious to me for how to drive well. 
But one that I did remember was to say to him, like, don't just look where the car is right now, but focus on where you want the car to go. Like if you focus too intently just on the two feet in front of the car, you're gonna steer really wonky and actually quite dangerously. So fix your gaze further down the road and the drive will go much more smoothly and it will get you where you actually want to go. And I think that's what Paul is doing in this passage as well. You know, he's saying, train your eyes to look beyond just those two feet in front of you to find the expansive and abundant goodness present all around you. And that will begin to displace the focus that we so naturally have on anxiety and fear. If we practice looking for goodness, we will see more goodness. And then that's where we will start to naturally go in our being. And in case you're wondering what goodness looks like, he says, here are a few markers. And he starts with whatever is true. I love that this is where it begins, that, that this one is the foundation. Now, this is not a cultivation of delusion. It's not telling ourselves pretty little lies. Like, there's no way that little tub of ice cream has 1,200 calories. It must be mislabeled. We're not lying to pretend things are better than they are. Right? Paul is not calling us to a denial of reality, but to, I never know whether to say an ascension into a higher reality or, or a dive down into a deeper reality, but that. <laughs> it's not a move away from what's true. It's a move deeper into what is even truer. He's not even telling us to, to look away from our grief, our pain, or our suffering, but to while holding them in honest and close view, to also look beyond to not stop here, but to see what's even truer than the thing that's more obvious and visible on the surface. And we're not even talking about true as in accurate information, though we could start there, <laughs> but true north type true. You know, things that are real in the most meaningful of ways, things you can trust, things that are solid, a trueness of spirit. And then whatever is noble, or some translations say honorable, that feels like an increasingly scarce commodity in a lot of the content we take in in a day, doesn't it? And when's the last time that you saw something and thought, that's really noble? You know, evoking respect, dignity, reverence. Noble things, holy things, higher things. And then whatever is right, whatever is just. Not like right and wrong, black and white. This isn't measuring correct doctrine or moralistic living. He's talking about the, the stuff that's just right in your soul. You know, the stuff that's all goodness with no shadow. He's, he's talking about what's pure. In fact, that's the next word he uses, pure, like, like clean water running down a mountainside. Pure, like holy. Things of integrity. Things of innocence. You know, culturally, we are so eager to know the cynical underbelly of things. To understand what's on the dark side, to, to have and to feed that knowledge. When's the last time you intentionally went looking for or tried to cultivate a spirit of innocence? I feel so thirsty for this one. And whatever is lovely, it isn't talking about like lovely pink frilly tablecloths, unless that's your thing. But lovely meaning that which calls forth love, that which is love inspiring. And whatever is admirable, what's worth admiring. Look for that, Paul says. And I love the language on the last two. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, 
there's an allowance here, a, a grace to accept that maybe most of what you're seeing right now feels like a dumpster fire, but is there anything out there, anything at all that is excellent and worth applauding? Any higher good? Find that, fix your gaze on that, anything at all. I love the mercy in there. I feel like it acknowledges, hey, it's not always easy to spot, but let's cast the net wide. It's worth it. Let's find and name all the possible goodness that we can. And then once you've spotted it, step two is think about the goodness. Like really, really intentionally think about it. The Bible translation I read said, think about such things, but other translations use wording like, fill your mind with, fix your thoughts on, focus your thoughts, meditate on, and let your mind continually dwell on these things. Like there's an actual call to obsessiveness built in there, which is kind of good news because generally speaking, we're very, very good at obsessive thinking. And we just tend to do it all in the direction of negative things. And we fixate on problems and obstacles and negativity and pain like nobody's business. We are skilled masters. Paul is saying, hey, why don't you take that nice, strong, obsessive thinking muscle you've got going on there and, and just see what happens if you try to bend it in the direction of goodness instead. Just see if it won't do the very same work making you a master at finding the thing you're looking for. Now, what if goodness really is there and we're just not seeing it because we're not really looking for it? Thinking about it obsessively helps train that muscle. And we also need to make sure that we are thinking with curiosity. You know, when you spot something resonating with goodness out there in the world, don't just nod and keep going thinking you've got that. Stop. Stop your day and observe it. Dig deeper into it, whatever it is. Watch it. Wonder at it. Be attentive and open-hearted and let yourself take it all the way in. Bask in it and then let goodness do its work upon your soul. Immerse yourself in the experience. It will change your way of seeing. It will change your way of being. And do you want to know why? Because this isn't just some random list of high moral attributes or lofty philosophical qualities. The list is Jesus. That's what Paul is describing. These are sketch strokes on the silhouette of Christ. Jesus is the true. Jesus is the noble. He's what is right, what is pure. Jesus is loveliness, and loveliness is Jesus. Paul is coaxing us to draw near to the very person of God. The invitation in Scripture to us again and again are, are Jesus' open arms saying, Come close, the Lord is near. It's Jesus saying, Come close and look me in the eyes. Let me look into yours. And then watch how inside of that sacred connection, that, that holy space, everything can change, both within you and all around you. If it's hard and weird and abstract to think you're supposed to be walking around looking for God, looking for Jesus, like what does that even mean? Am I looking for a dusty first century carpenter going for a stroll on top of Lake Ontario? Like what do these words mean? Paul is showing us. It means to look for goodness for the sparks of light wherever you find them, all around you and within you, within each other. Right in here is what is true and noble and right and pure and so lovely, deeply admirable, excellent and worth rejoicing over. Right in here. Look for that goodness and you will be looking into the eyes of Jesus. 
The face of God is everywhere. We just need to retrain our eyes to see it obsessively. And as we do that, as we gather up all those glimpses into our arms, into our hearts, with the new sight that we're catching, Paul says, now make it real on the ground of your life. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. What we don't walk will never work. So these things can't just stay as thoughts in our head. They, they have to be worked out in our bones, in the everyday ground of our life. The cultivation of both seeing and becoming an embodiment of all that goodness that is all around us. So how can you make it more real every single day, no matter the season, no matter the storm? For me, this means dorky things like literally writing out lists of what is good, of what is true, of what is right when everything inside my scared little heart wants to disbelieve it. I have to remind myself so I write it out. So maybe make some lists. Keep a note open on your phone to record quick glimpses that you catch during the day. Go home at night and open the note back up and then think more deeply about whatever you saw. Speak the things out loud. Speak them to yourself. Speak them to others. And maybe it means surrounding yourself with people who exude this, people who do it well better than you. Those who both show you their deep goodness and who help to draw the goodness out of you. Find those friends, spend time with them, bribe them with food and beverages. Let them help show you the footsteps to that way of seeing and being. Make art inspired by the glimpses you catch. You know, take that list from the passage and intentionally try to look for those specific qualities in the world. When's the last time you noticed something that felt truly pure out there? Like we have to go goodness hunting to retrain our eyes. And you know that I'm going to beg you to go spend time in nature because it is all right there. Surrounding and immersing and shouting from the ground and the water and the sky that there is indeed a God of goodness holding every fabric of this world in the palm of an outstretched hand. And that is actually how Paul brings this passage to conclusion. He says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Note, he doesn't say that peaceful circumstances will be with you. Unfortunately, that's not the promise. But that you can be carried through, held steadily in the tender, strong hand of the God of peace? Absolutely. That your eyes and heart and body can increasingly be attuned to goodness even in the midst of unbelievable storms? Yeah. <laughs> I am so far from being skilled in this realm. But I see more today than I saw yesterday. And I know that I will see more tomorrow than I can spot right now. And I believe to the bottom of my toes that this is the only way that resurrection happens. That continuous journey from death to life that we are all on. It's one glimpse, one breath, one step at a time. This way of seeing, this way of being, it, it roots our heart ever more deeply into the heart of Christ. It's returning us home to our true nature, back to the original goodness that we were created in. It reharmonizes us with the Spirit of God in whom we live and move and have our being. And so my prayer for all of us is that we may find the abundant goodness that is surrounding us on every single side, filling us from the inside out, 
and pouring itself into every nook and cranny of our messy, beautiful, complicated lives. In Jesus, I pray. Amen.